All right, good morning, everybody. We are going to start a new series today. I know you guys are like, ah, oh, finally. <laughs> I think we spent like eight weeks in the last series, so if you didn't get a chance to look into that, um, I've shared this before, that was kind of a life message for me about the wisdom and the power of God and what all that means and how we put that, that together, and it's part of the philosophy of how we build ministry here at DCF. Uh, so if you're new to DCF or you're interested in learning a little bit more about that, um, it's pretty extensive, <laughs> so be ready for it if you didn't listen or get a chance to listen to it. Uh, today we're starting a new series called New Creation. Uh, one of my favorite preachers of all time was a man by the name of George Whitfield. He was a preacher. Uh, he was actually English. He went to Oxford with uh, the Methodist brothers, they called him, uh, George and what was his name? Not, not George. Uh, I'm at a loss now. That's terrible. <laughs> So if you're Methodist, I apologize to you. But anyway, George Whitfield went together with these guys, and they were part of the Methodist revivals that went across the entire United States, all of England, of course, and across the United States. And they called this the, the First Great Awakening. happened about the early 1700s to somewhere around 1740 or so. There was a Second Great Awakening that happened in the later 1700s. So this 18th century is a very interesting time, uh, especially in America. George Whitfield came... Uh, to America, and he established uh, all kinds of different things in, in the States. He started in Georgia, of all places. You might not be aware of that. Uh, but he began preaching all over New England, and uh, by the time he was done, they reckoned that he had preached over 18,000 times. He died in his mid-50s, so he didn't live a very long life. Started probably when he was in, when it was in his early 20s. Um, again, 18,000 times over, and he probably preached to over 10 million people. So imagine that back then when there was no internet, there was no loudspeakers, there was none of that. Um, he spoke to over 10 million people in his lifetime. And uh, they figured at some point that if they averaged it out, it, it was anywhere from three to ten times a day he preached. <laughs> and that included, by the way, all the traveling that he did. One time he traveled from New York City um, on horseback from New York City down to the Carolinas, which if you know anything about that trip, it's quite an extensive trip. Um, he preached all over New England. He went back to England. He preached many times in, in uh, England. He was actually good friends with Ben Franklin. Uh, yeah, thank you. He was actually really good friends with Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin was not a Christian, but he was fascinated by, by Whitfield. As a matter of fact, he heard stories that Whitfield could, would, was preaching sometimes to 10,000 people at once, and he didn't think that was possible. So he went to one of his meetings, and he, he stood near the stage as Whitfield was preaching, and he walked away from the stage until he couldn't hear him anymore. And then he did the math. <laughs> sounds like Ben Franklin, right? He did the math, and he found out that, that not only could he have spoken to 10,000 people um, based on the crowds that were there, if they gathered in a circle around him, he could probably have, have spoken to over 30,000 people at once. So he was a phenomenal guy. If, you, if you're interested in looking up some of his stuff, he preached a message called uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God which is one of, if you ever read it, you're like, you won't read it twice, I promise you. It'll, <laughs> it'll, scare, the, it'll scare the hell out of you is what it'll do. And I think that was kind of the intention um, at his time. Anyway, he was a fascinating guy, but he started out in, in, in ministry, and he was, he was what, would call, what you would call, um, he was into a, uh, asceticism, is that how you pronounce it? Anyway, he was legalist. You know, he thought that if he beat his body, if he, if he, if he fasted all the time, if he, he, he actually said at one point that he wore, um, he didn't wear dust in his wig, again, 1700s, because he didn't feel that penitent people should do that. <laughs> I thought, what an interesting comment on culture, right? Don't, don't wear white dust in your wig, because lawyers would get this. But anyway, so, because they still do that in England to this day as, as lawyers. So this guy was a pretty phenomenal guy, but what he discovered was he had built his, his Christianity in the beginning, he built it on what he was doing to try to appease God. He started out with all these different things that he would do. He would beat his body. He would do everything he could to try to, try to earn his, uh, his relationship with God, to, see, to, to make sure that God would like him or that somehow he would be accepted in God. And he began to study Scripture, and he, he read a couple of books, and one book that he read actually challenged him that his brand of Christianity, it turns out, was no Christianity at all. And so he discovered that into his early ministry, he was not a Christian. <laughs> right? Which is probably why later on he spoke to so many people and he preached such powerful messages because he understood what it meant to have lived as um, an old creation pretending to be a new creation. 
and, and the dilemma that it had created in his own soul. And you see this, Martin Luther did the same thing. Martin Luther climbed the steps of the Basilica in Rome on his knees until they bled because he felt like if he did that, somehow he could pay, somewhat pay for his sin. Somehow he could deserve God's blessing and his kindness and his mercy. And of course, we know Martin Luther, he discovered something that uh, all, the, you know, all the people in the early part of the scripture, when you read the Bible, they all knew it, that the just would live by faith or should live by faith that you could not earn your salvation no matter what you did, right? That it was a gift of God. And it's right there in Scripture. When you read it, it's pretty obvious. But it just goes to show you how far off people can get in their understanding of who Jesus is. So we're going to start this series with a Scripture. I'm sure you've probably figured this out by now. But 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Brand new. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So this scripture starts with a very interesting word, therefore. My, uh, my first uh, pastor said, if you see the word therefore, you should find out what it's there for. Because <laughs> it alludes to something that's it's building an argument for something in this scripture that doesn't actually occur in this scripture. So you have to back up and go, when he says therefore, so he's presented an argument, and then he says, because of this truth, this thing is true. Right? So it's helpful to look at that. I mean, this scripture stands upon its, on its own, of course, um, that if, if anyone is in Christ. It's saying you, you have to actually be in Christ if you're going to be a new, cre- a, cre- a new creation. And if you're not in Christ, you're not a new creation. So that in Christ matters in a, in a big way. And so the reason that therefore is there is actually you back up to verse 15 and it says this. It says Jesus, he, he Jesus, died for all. And here's why, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So he's saying, if you're a new creation, here's a way you can know that you're a new creation. You stop living for yourself. So when I got saved, um, my marriage got saved. <laughs> that was appropriate, Karen. Thanks for that. Um, <laughs> but it is very true. We were, I don't know if you guys, if you've been around us, you've noticed that Karen and I have very mild personalities, so it was easy for us to get along in the early days. That's sarcasm, in case you don't know. Um, but we, a year into marriage, it was not going well, because we were both trying to lead in a dance that none, neither one of us understood, right? Um, and also, we, we were just high-capacity people who just butted against, and we also very, very selfish, both of us, um, and that, again, I don't know if you know this, but that doesn't do well for a marriage. But it also turns out that it doesn't do anything for your salvation either. And, and one way, you know, uh, Whitfield, interestingly enough, was asked one time after he preached this major revival. I mean, literally thousands and thousands of people would come to the altar and they would give their lives to Christ. There would be weeping. I mean, it was, it, sometimes it was just full of emotion. And they asked him one time, one uh, reporter asked him, he said, how many people do you think uh, got saved today? And he said, I don't know. Come back in six months and let's find out. And the reason he said that was just because you have an emotional experience in the beginning doesn't mean you've become a new creation, right? Because Jesus talked about the parable of the sower, how the seed would fall sometimes on hard ground, sometimes it would fall on, you know, all kinds of different ground, but only one of them allowed the seed to grow up. Some of it would start, it would begin, and then and it would get choked out by the cares of this world. In other words, it's like, uh, I love Jesus, but, you know, he's just one of the many things that I love. <laughs> he's not my primary love. He's not, he's not the thing that moves me. He's not, my, he's not the beginning of my identity. He's not actually God to me. He's just another thing that I, I've, in, you know, I've introduced into my life. And you see this all the time in Christian circles. I love it when people say, uh, you know, I'll be talking to them about faith, and they'll say, yeah, well, no, my faith is private. And I'm like, there is no such thing as private faith in Christianity. It does not exist. And the way I know it doesn't exist is baptism. First thing that you have to do, you should do, when you give your life to Christ is get baptized. Why? Why is it that God said, hey, one of the sacraments that we, that we you know, the Lord's Supper and baptism, one of them is baptism. Why is that so important? Because it's a declaration to everyone that you know, all of your family, everyone in your, that you work for, everybody. It's a declaration to them. It's not supposed to be done just in church. It's supposed to be done where people can see it. Why? Because you're identifying with something. You're dying to something and coming alive to something, and you're identifying with someone, right? And so the whole idea behind your Christianity is there's no such thing as a private faith. If you don't get that privilege, there's no such thing. Jesus died publicly. The Bible says that he hung on a cross publicly in a major thoroughfare, right? 
and he hung naked. Most people don't know this because all the paintings, almost all of the paintings of Jesus on the cross, he's wearing a loincloth. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he hung naked. Why? Because his shame was exposed so yours could be taken away. It was public. It, what he did on the cross was not private. And, and all throughout the New Testament, you see, you see that um, spoken into. That this was not done behind somewhere. It wasn't done in private. This was done publicly. What Jesus did was done publicly, and so should your faith be. So there's a passage in Romans 6, 4 that says, like Christ, when Christ was raised up from the dead, it says that we, you and I, are supposed to walk in newness of life. In other words, you have to stop living for yourself and start living for him. This is what it means to be a Christian. To be Christian just means little Christ. It was first used in Antioch, one of the first churches um, outside of Jerusalem, and it literally means a little Christ. You are becoming more and more like Jesus, right? You are a little Christ is what it means to be a Christian. So um, my, my pastor in Bible college coined a phrase, and he, he started talking about this, and I didn't understand what it, what it meant until I learned it a little bit later on with some guys that we hung out with um, probably 20 years later. But it was a phrase, and this is kind of what this um, part one is kind of titled after, and it was this. What you get saved into is more important than what you got saved out of. <laughs> and so let that sink in for a second. What you got saved into, or, sorry, what, what you got saved into is more important than what you gave, got saved out of. So what, what, is it, what, what do I mean by that? So when you get saved into something, usually it's into a community, it's a church. Some people didn't. I have a friend who got saved completely without church. There was no church involvement. I mean, he'd been witnessed to and ministered to, so technically the church was involved, obviously. But he didn't get saved in a church. He didn't get saved at a religious meeting. He had an encounter with Jesus himself. And then from there, he began to get connected to church, which is exactly the same thing, by the way, that happened to Paul on the Damascus Road, right? He has an encounter with Jesus, and then he becomes part of the church. And so, so the challenge with that is, when I got saved, I got saved into a group of people that believed something about Jesus was very true, thankfully. That's what actually led to my salvation. They brought me there. But just like your family of record, um, sometimes your family gets some things right and gets other things wrong. Anybody? Can I get a witness? <laughs> it's like, my family's really good at this, but they suck at this. They're so bad. You know, it's like awful. And, and, and we all have those stories, of course. And every church is like that too, to some degree. You can get saved into an immature church. Paul speaks, uh, you know, the whole series that we did about, um, uh, about wisdom and power was really about the Corinthian church. It was about a conversation around First and Second Corinthians. Um, and he says, your, your meetings are doing more harm than good. <laughs> so why does that matter? Um, the reason why it ma matters is what we're taught in the beginning sets the stage for later development. Our walk with Jesus, if it begins wrong, it often... It, it, it often goes further away from there. So if you start a journey, if you decide to go to Atlanta today and you accidentally take 231 instead of 431, which I have done, <laughs> and at some point, you're, you know, if you're doing GPS, your GPS is like, uh, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you know, turn around, um, it's time. And so, <laughs> and if not, somewhere along the way, you're like, something's off. I feel something is off, right? And you have to spend a lot of resources to get back on track. And so the point is, is those two roads diverge in Dothan not very far apart, right? They're very close. But by the time you get to the end of one of them, you know, one of them you're in Birmingham and the other place you're in Atlanta, and that's two, two hours away from each other. So it's easy to get, to get off track in your walk with Jesus depending on how you begun how you began your walk with Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews goes after this. There's a passage in Hebrews chapter 5, and this is what it says. A little bit lengthy, but it's worth reading. Um, he says to these guys, he said, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. How would you like your pastor to say that to you? <laughs> I'm really trying to get through this, but you are hard of hearing, buddy. I don't know what your problem is. You are not listening to what I'm saying, right? He goes on, he says, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers. So he said there's enough time passed where you ought to know some of these things. It's not like time has been the issue. But isn't it true that so often people who are in church for a very long time, somehow we think that the time you spend in church equals maturity? <laughs> Let me help you. It does not, right? We all kind of know that. It can help with your maturity, but it doesn't mean necessarily that that's true. So he says, by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. And this is what he said. He says, you need milk. So he's, he's making... An, uh, uh, an he's creating an illustration for them to understand their maturity level in Christ. He says, right now you need milk. And he goes on, he says, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk 
being still an infant. So let me just stop there. You can live on milk. And a lot of Christians do. They start out with milk, and they never graduate to solid food. It's just milk, 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 right? <laughs> and like, you're, you're a baby in Christ. You're babes in Christ. If Paul spoke to the Corinthian church like this. He said, man, you are babes in Christ. You need to grow up. He makes this comment one place. He says, when I was a child, I did childlike things. But when I became a man, I put away the childish things, and I started doing manly things. Well, it doesn't say exactly that, but you kind of get my point, right? So he says, um, anyone who lives on milk, so you can live on milk, being still an infant. That means you can stay an infant. Your enti- you can be a Christian baby your entire walk with the Lord. And I've met people like this, and it's really frightening. He said, anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Hold that phrase. He goes on, he says, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. He's saying that if you don't grow up, if you don't constantly use, you know, begin to grow in this solid food and you begin to understand these things, you're never going to even be able to determine good and evil. You are going to be, in another place he talked about, you're going to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Somebody's going to come up with a great idea on Facebook and you're going to buy it hook, line, sinker. They're going to they're share a scripture out of context. You're going to take it as the gospel, only it's not because it's completely out of context. And if you're not careful, you won't be able to distinguish. You will be confused your entire Christian walk. You'll never be settled. You'll never be in peace. You'll never be, you'll never be solid and stable as a believer. You will always be an infant, which means you'll never grow up to be a teacher or a father and mother so that you can actually have babes in Christ yourself. You will never disciple anyone. You will constantly be in need of disciple. You will constantly be need, in need of milk. And Paul's like, this is really not a good idea, and it's not God's design. Right, So he goes after that, and he says, if, if you live on solid food and you begin to use the solid food, the constant use of this helps you grow up as a believer, and it settles some things in it. Listen to what it says. He says, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves. You train yourself in the, the food, in the mature food, in the solid food of the word, right? You train yourself to distinguish good from evil. You begin to recognize when the enemy is at play, when the world is at play, when God's moving, you're not confused, you're not thrown about by crazy doctrines, you're settled in your walk with Jesus, and you become, as he talked to the Corinthians, you, your meetings become more helpful than harmful, right? They begin to move from being harmful, immature meetings to moving into solid food-type meetings where people are moved downfield in their walk with Jesus to the point where they become disciplers themselves. The Bible talks about you have, a, you have received a ministry of reconciliation. You have been reconciled so that you can go reconcile others. But most of us never graduate to even be reconciled ourselves to the point where we can actually go on and help reconcile other people, where we begin to minister into other people's lives because our needs need to be met all the time, which I don't know if you guys know anything about babies. We have a few people who've got some little ones, right? Um, they're kind of needy, <laughs> Right? Like all the time, like just wham, 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 just want to be changed, want milk, want just constantly needy, right? And that turns out oftentimes that's what churches are. You, you have churches that are a bunch of immature babies who never grow up in the mature things so they can never be helpful. So it becomes the Lord of the Flies, right? You remember this story where, where everybody in, in the community is a baby and then it turns out badly for some reason, like who knows why, right? <laughs> right? And so we see stupid things happening in churches, and we're like, how in the world could that, how could they get to that point? And Paul's like, uh, it's not that difficult, actually, to understand why, right? So Paul called the foundational doctrines the milk of the word. Like, again, this illustration about being a baby. But what was the meat? He actually answers this question in verse 13, and this is what the meat is. He said, anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. So what does it mean to, to be on milk, right? Wouldn't you think it, was, it would be the first things like the teaching about righteousness? I'm like, how do you get your righteousness, right? I'm, I give my life to Jesus. I get saved. I mean, it's not self-righteousness, right? Because the scripture you just, we just read about, it's, it, the, the therefore passage is you have to stop living for yourself, right? So wouldn't we think, like, I mean, the teaching about righteousness seems like it's milk, um, you know, it's the milk of the word, but it's actually not. 
And this is where we often get mixed up because we, we believe the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for me and I couldn't die for myself, right? I couldn't pay. There was a price I could not pay. Not that I was unwilling. I could not do it. Someone had to pay that price for me. Jesus came and did that. We understand this if we're believers. He paid that price and that, so we get saved by the gospel, which is good news, which is news, which means you can't do anything about it except believe it or not believe it. You can't change the news. You can't create your own news from the news that came to you, even though today that seems to happen a lot, right? <laughs> right? But you can't, news is news. It's like it's the truth, it's a fact, you can't change it. And as a matter of fact, the word gospel comes from originally when, when, a, uh, when a general would win a conflict, he would send word back, and the word was, it was the gospel came back to the, whether it was the ruler or the city or whatever, because he won a victory. So you couldn't just say, well, he sort of won the victory. No, he either did or he didn't. The gospel is just, it's just, it's good news, right? So that's part of what we forget. It's like we get it, we get the news, and then somehow from the news that we can't do anything in and of ourselves, that he did it all for us, yeah, but <laughs> I'm going to help him. I'm going to help Jesus, right? Because I'm going I'm to come alongside Jesus and help a little bit. As a matter of fact, this turns out to be a big, big doctrine that has invaded the church since the beginning of the gospel, and we're going to get into that. So Romans 3, most of us have heard this. It says, but now apart from the law of righteousness, sorry, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. So listen to that phrase again. He says, He's talking to Jews. So again, context is king when you're reading Scripture. If you don't know the context of the situation, you, this makes no sense to you, right? Because you, if you didn't grow up a Jew, you don't know what the law is. So it's incumbent upon you as a believer to go back and study, to show yourselves approved, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed. Not that you, your study saves you. No, your study helps you understand your salvation, right? The Bible says that you work out your, your own salvation with fear and trembling. doesn't mean that your fear and trembling is what saves you. It just means that at some point you need to understand that this is a really big deal. And if you don't give it attention and you don't understand it, you'll forever walk as a baby and you're actually no earthly good. You're unhelpful because you're, you're always the only one in need. And so it, it, you know, in, in combat, um, you don't shoot people necessarily to kill them. I mean, you start out doing that, right? But at some point you realize um, a, good, a good soldier recognizes if I maim someone right, then not only do I take him out, he can no longer fight at all, but now it takes three or four people to take care of him. And so the enemy has done that for thousands of years now. He's like, if I can just maim Christians and keep them maimed, keep them babies, then not only does that baby never win anybody to Jesus, never become a father and mother, a discipler in the world, never take the good news into the world, but now also that person is needed, uh, the, all the other mature believers around them has to spend energy and effort keeping them, you know, from dying, so to speak. See how the enemy is just a tactic of the enemy. So he says, by now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God's been made known. He said, here's the law, right? This is how you understood it and how you guys have turned now. The law was designed for something very specific, and we're going to get into that in this series. But why was the law given? You've totally misunderstood that now, and you've made the law about saving you when it never could, right? You've made, to put that in context for us today, that somehow you doing right saves you. No, it doesn't. Sinners, broken people who do not know Jesus can do right things. It does not make them righteous. In the same way that righteous people who have been made righteous by Jesus' blood can do sinful things, it does not make them a sinner. And if you don't understand that, you're still living in the milk of the word, right? So we're, we're confused by it. Because the teachings about righteousness is what I just defined. That's the important thing is understanding that your morality is not what saves you. Which is really tough for Southerners, right? Because moralism is one of the biggest challenges that we run into. He goes on this passage and he says, uh, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. And he says this, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to who? To all who believe. It's not given to everybody. It's available to everybody. It's available to everyone. But it's not given to everyone. The only way you get it is you have to believe this truth. So why do we testify of Jesus? Why do we share the gospel? Because until you share the gospel, the Bible says, how are they going to know unless they hear the truth, right? 
And, and how are they going to know unless you go and tell them? There's something that you and I are required to do. We've been reconciled, so we go reconcile. So part of being on mission is building a relationship with people who don't know Jesus so that we can build a relationship with the people who don't know Jesus with the Jesus that wants to know them, right? But if you don't do that, if all you ever do is think about you and yours, then again, we're essentially those maimed people who it's all about me and myself and my needs and my family and my, 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 right? And it never becomes about anybody else but me because I'm always in pain, I'm always hurting, I'm always broken. And God's like, hey, if you'll let this come into your life, if you'll hear this, if you'll let Jesus do the work inside of you, every issue you have will be dealt with, I promise you. I, I can't deal with, I can, I, can, I can counsel you all day long, but all I'm really doing is counseling you back to, if you'll let Jesus do this inside of you, he will do the work inside of you. He will, he's the one who made you, <laughs> Right? He can do whatever is necessary inside of you to bring you to maturity and bring you to fruition in your life, to deal with all the issues and the pain and the hurt so that you can rise up, you can grow up to be a teacher, to be a father and a mother so that you can take the reconciliation that you have received, the health and the wholeness and the peace and every good thing that you've received, and now you can begin to give that out to people who are in need themselves, right? So he goes on. Um, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Again, it starts out... Um, to those who are in Christ, you are a new creation. You're not a new creation automatically. Again, it's available. But just because you've been around church or you've talked to Jesus or Jesus did a miracle for you, go read the New Testament. There are tons of people who had encounters with Jesus who never knew Jesus. They, they considered him a rabbi, a great teacher. There's a lot of reasons. They said some of them didn't like him because he was, he was stirring up the religious, you know, he was stirring up problems with the religion of their day. He was... He was upsetting the apple cart, and they really loved apples, <laughs> right? So Paul goes after this in a huge way, and this is kind of what, we're, what we want to go after today, because if you don't get this, if you don't understand that how you begin in this, uh, what you got saved into is more important than what you got saved out of. If you don't understand this, then you could potentially be walking in error right now and not even realize that you are. And part of what my challenge to us is, is to go back, and the Bible says to examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith or not. In other words, there, it's a good thing to get these foundational things settled inside of you and to understand, to begin to move into the meat of the word, which is the teachings about righteousness. Because something about this, when it happens, when you begin to walk in the way God designed for you to walk in righteousness, it's a gift of righteousness. It's not self-righteous at all. There's no self involved in it. It can't be by its very nature. But when you begin to get it, it changes you. You cannot be proud and arrogant if you understand the gift of righteousness. You can't be judgmental. You can't be legalistic. You can't look your no down your nose and judge someone else because in your heart, in your head, you know that there, but for the grace of God, goes I. That without God's grace, whatever problem, whatever brokenness, whatever hurt, whatever destruction somebody's life is in, that would be me had I not given myself to the grace of God and, the, and received the grace of God for myself. So Paul goes after this in a big way. This is 2 Corinthians 11, 2 through 4. <clears throat> he says, for I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Remember these Corinthians. I wouldn't have claimed them as, as church. <laughs> I'd be like, Apollo started that church. I'm just going to help. But he did. He says, I'm jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband. My whole job was to introduce you to Jesus. That I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. He's saying to the Corinthian church, he said, People have come in and preached to you a different Jesus, and you have put up with it. You believed it. You, you want a Jesus that's okay with your sin. But that's not who Jesus is. Jesus loves you. He loves you before you ever did anything right or good. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The worst, our, our, in our worst moment, Jesus laid his life down for us, long before we even came up with our worst moment, right? But he, he loves us where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us where we are. 
right? There's a movement from if all you do is say, I'm just taking Jesus as a savior, but not as Lord, then essentially what I'm saying is I don't want the real Jesus. I just want the part that I like. And you can't have that. <laughs> you just, you can't. You, truth, truth, we said this about the scripture because the scripture is truth. Truth is an anvil on which many a hammer has been broken. You can rage against the truth all day long, but you'll rage with no um, with no fruit from it whatsoever. You'll never get past it. So there's a different gospel than the one he preached. He talks about this in Galatians. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. So he's saying the, the gospel that, that you understand as the, as the scriptural gospel did not come from some guy's idea. He goes on, he says, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. He said, I was on my way, being a very religious man, very religious Jew. I was, I was stamping out Christianity for the sake of Jesus. Or, well, you know, he didn't know the Messiah at the time, but he was, he was on, on business for the church. <laughs> and he got knocked off his donkey. They called him asses before, but I'm not going to say that. It would be fun to say it, but you would lose me. But he got knocked off his donkey. <laughs> And he had a revelation of Jesus, right? And then Jesus comes to some guy, just another believer. We don't even kind of know. He just shows up. He's just a believer that hears Jesus. And, and Jesus says, hey, I want you to go talk to Paul, and I want you to help him. And the guy's like, if, if I was him, I'd be like, no, no, dog, I am not going to Paul. He kills Christians for fun. I'm not, he never said that. He's just, absolutely, Lord. You're the Lord. I trust you. If it takes my life, my life was worth, it was yours all along. I'll give it. So he goes and he helps Paul understand who Jesus is. He, he Basically, he just comes, prays for him, seals the deal for Paul. Paul has this revelation of Jesus that now he takes into all the earth and he becomes one of the greatest preachers of the gospel that ever lived. Galatians 2, he, he went, when he was preaching this gospel, just again, because he's a man, he's like, am I getting this right? Right? Because there's a lot of pushback against this gospel that he was preaching to the Gentiles he said, am I getting this right? So he went back, and this is what he says. This is Galatians 2. He says, I went in response to Revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. So he went back and met with Peter, James, John, the apostles that had lived with Jesus for three years. Paul never did that. He never lived with Jesus, right? He met Jesus post-ascension. Now, let me just go back to my series for <laughs> eight weeks. He, Paul was a post-ascension apostle. He goes through many places in the Bible and says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. So this post-ascension apostle was not the same as the pre-ascension apostles, the 12, right? And why that's important is because, again, we also got that wrong. I mentioned this in my last message about how many times the word pastor appears in the New Testament, and yet we call every leader of a church a pastor because culturally that's what they should be, Right? But biblically, leaders, especially in the book of Acts, there were more teachers and prophets and apostles than any pastors at that time. And so we can get these things wrong. And so Paul's going after this, and he says, um, I went up to, to talk to these guys because I wanted to make sure this was right. This is what he says. He said, I presented, them, presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles, the gospel that I received by revelation on that road. I've been preaching this. I went to them to say, hey guys, this is the gospel that I'm preaching. Is this the same gospel that Jesus taught you? Right? And so we go through, they call it the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15. He goes, talks about all of this stuff, and they, have, they come to the same conclusion. Absolutely, this is true. He says, I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. I wanted to make sure that this gospel that I preach was the right one. So he went after this in a big way. Here's why this is so important. The kind of gospel we believe and teach directly determines the kind of disciples that we produce. If we're not preaching the biblical gospel, we are preaching what Paul called a different gospel. And there are tons of different gospels out there. A different gospel leads to a few things. It leads to a different Christ. Hear this. A different church, a different Christian, and ultimately a different Christian culture. Because all culture is, is a combination, uh, a group of people with shared values. That's all culture is. And you get it wrong. If you preach a different gospel, it will destroy people's lives, and it is really, really a bad thing. 
So here's the gospel. Here's what he was talking about. Specifically, Paul went after this in a big way because this is the one that he talked about. This is Galatians 2 again. He says, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised. Now, why this is important is Titus, Titus was, um, he was part Gentile, part Jew, right? And so Titus, he, 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 because he was Gentile, he could have been, he could have been asked to do this. He, was, he chose not to. He goes on, he says, he was not compelled to be circumcised. In other words, even for the sake of the church, to, sought, to calm the argument down, all he had to do was get circumcised. And I love how I said all you had to do was get circumcised. Like, that's a small thing, right? Like, as a grown man, like, I, I don't even want to talk about it. But he says he wasn't even compelled to do it. He's like, I'm not doing this for the sake of the church. And I'm like, with you, Titus, totally get it. And he says, even though he was a Greek, right? So, so he could have, he didn't need to, he, he knew it made no difference to who he was in Christ, but he could have done it to calm the, the conversation because it was a heated conversation. But he would not do it. He stood his ground on something that was true because he's not going to be party to a different gospel. He goes on. He says, this matter arose because some false believers, false believers, believers who looked like believers but weren't, he said, they had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They don't like your freedom. Legalists do not like your freedom. You get to do things they can't do. <laughs> right? Let me give you an example. You can drink. <gasps> And I don't mean sodas. Those are worse for your problem than the other problem that, that Southerners have, right? <clears throat> I love it when people say, you know, the Bible says, thou shalt not drink. I'm like, it so does not say that <laughs> at all. It says drunkards won't inherit the king, kingdom of God. So is a drunkard the same thing as drinking? Of course not. Anybody with a brain knows that, right? It says of elders, right? Some of the, the people who are supposed to be some of the most mature believers in, in the body, not given to much wine. Define much. If I see a drunk elder, that's too much wine. I'm like, I don't, I don't know what kind of stress you're under, but this is not how you handle it. Like, let's have another conversation, right? <laughs> but he goes on, he says, they come in to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves again to sin. What he's, or, or slaves again to the law. He says, we did not give in to them for a moment. We stood our ground on this issue because it was not the gospel that Jesus gave us. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. These leaders stood their ground. Why? Because this gospel is too important to get it wrong. We're not going to confuse this in any way. He goes on, Acts 15, the story I was telling earlier. He says, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. He said, you can't, it's Jesus is not enough. You also have to do some other things, like the law, and one of those is you've got to get circumcised, right? My question is, all, again, I think outside the box, so I apologize in advance, but I'm always fascinated, like if they said circumcision plus Jesus was the rule, like how do you check? Like the greeters have this whole new job description, Right? I'm like, you've got to be kidding. No wonder they were, this is like not going to work. So he goes on, he says, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. This is literally what they were saying. And he says, this brought, listen to this phrase, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and, dis and debate with them. That's a kind way of saying their veins were popping out of their head and they were angry to the, pit, to, to the point where they were ready to wrestle these guys to the ground. They're like, you cannot do this. You are destroying babies in Christ. You cannot do this. They're never going to let them grow up if you do this. Acts 15, it goes on about uh, five, uh, five verses later. It says, Then some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, so they're connected to Jewish believers, right, stood up and said, this is in the Jerusalem council, stood up and said in this argument, it says the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now here's the problem with a different gospel. It can only be one or the other. Either Jesus is enough, or you, there's some other things that you have to do to be saved. And this was the problem that they got into. So what was, what was this other gospel? It was a mixture of Jesus plus anything else. Anything. Jesus plus you have to join the church. 
Jesus plus you have to read your Bible. Jesus plus you have to give. Jesus plus you have to, to, to go to church. None of those are bad things. You should probably do all, all of those things. And, and if your heart is driven by this love of God, you're, you're going to be compelled to do these things. There's fruit that comes out in your life. That's an easy one to see. But for me to say to you that you must do this also to be saved is, a, is an entirely different gospel. Or in our day, it would be do the right thing. Jesus plus, you better, you better shine up. So you know what? This is how this works practically in a church. We don't trust the Holy Spirit to save people. They come in the church and we're like, you need to be moral. You need to toe the line. You need to look like us, act like us. You have, you have, to, you have to look everything. You have to look the look before you can belong to us. As a, as, now let me just say this. In, at DCF, and, this, and so far this has not been a big deal, but it's coming. As revival begins to come, you're going to see, because we've experienced this in big ways, right? And we're going to see this more and more and more. That you can, you can belong at, at DCF without believing or behaving. You can. You can be part of our family. Come and be a part. That's literally what Jesus said. Go out, make disciples. He didn't say go out, get them saved, then make disciples. That's literally what a disciple is. A disciple starts with you teach them about all things Jesus, right? So you bring them into your family. The love of God, the kindness, the goodness of God is expressed in us and through us, right? And so there's mercy, there's kindness, and there's grace in everyone's struggle. And this is what Scripture teaches about this. This is so true. But as we disciple them, the idea is to move them from this, whatever their belief is about Jesus, because maybe it's right, but probably it's wrong. Because there's cultural Jesus, there's the Baptist Jesus, the Pentecostal Jesus, the Catholic Jesus, the Mormon Jesus, the internet Jesus, <laughs> right? The meme Jesus. I mean, there's all kinds of them, but there's only one really. And that's the challenge we have to go after is say, what does this mean to us practically? What does it mean for us to live this out in a way that is biblical? So how do you do that? How do you stay, you know, it's like, well, I, I have to be pure, so, so I, have to, I have to stay away from sinners. Think about this for a second. Jesus walked, walked up to a person with leprosy, which was the most contagious disease of their day, right? They were literally put aside into colonies so that they would not infiltrate and, and damage the rest of society, right? So Jesus walks up to them and just sticks his hand on their on their imagine their head or other parts of their body and prays for them. He touches lepers. And Jesus jumps on the leper. Leprosy didn't jump on Jesus. So what does it mean to be a mature believer? The more you're like Jesus, the less leprosy has a chance of jumping on you. So you can be in the midst of sinners with no problem whatsoever. I don't know about you, but I don't like the F word. And I'm not talking about faith. <laughs> because I was raised to not say certain words. Like literally, we went overseas to England and, I, and they called it, you know, they, I called it the bathroom or the restroom and they didn't know what that was. They called it a water closet and I didn't know what that was, right? So, so they, we finally settled on the word toilet. Like you could just use toilet like you could say that publicly and be okay with it. And I'm like, if I said toilet to my mother, she would have washed my mouth out with soap. How dare you say such a harsh, terrible word, right? Say toilet. So you can imagine what happened when I started hearing the F word. I'm like, wow, I think that's worth, worse than toilet. <laughs> right? It offended my southern sensibilities. Now, it's full of sin on the, in, on the inside, but, you know, we don't show that on the outside because we're southerners, right? That's what we do. <laughs> we appear to be holy, <laughs> but not necessarily holy, but some of us are, right? So here's the thing. That drove me crazy, and I finally had to reconcile my heart with that and say, to them, it's just a word. Like, it's literally, it's an adjective, it's a verb, it's a noun, it's a pronoun. It's like, right? And it's becoming more common. It is, it's just becoming more common. But here's the thing. I went overseas for five, five years, no, five or six years we were overseas. When we came back to the States, they were allowed to say words on television in those five years that they could have never said before we went over there. And that shocked me. So I'm like, oh, you can't say that word on national television, right? <laughs> but you can, and it's gotten worse since. So what, what am I, is that new? Go read the Corinthian church. Wasn't new. They lived in a society far worse than ours. Just in our society, it's more prevalent because communication is much more powerful. Right? So it's easy to, it's easy to see this stuff. So why does that matter? In our world, if we're not careful, we buy into something called moralism. Moralism is, here's the definition, a desire or feeling of obligation to justify oneself through virtuous living. 
I'm going to live right, and that's how I'm justified, right? It's, it's close to the word legalism. This is what legalism is. By doing, it's the idea that by doing good works or by obeying the law, a person earns or merits salvation. So here's the milk of the word. You cannot earn your salvation. It is a gift and only a gift. You can receive it or not receive it. That's up to you. But it's been freely given. You have to make a decision what you're going to do with it. The Bible says this very clearly. It says, it says if those who believe and are baptized, right? And all that's just saying is that the belief has become real because they're not afraid to make it public. It's so just a way to understand that, right? Those who are believing or baptized are saved. Those who, who do not believe, those who do not believe are damned. I don't like that scripture. And probably you don't like it either. But it's still the truth. And what we do so often, if we're not careful, is they, we, we just put that thought out of our head. Because the implications are, what? Am I, am I okay with people being damned? Am I okay with people going to hell? Am I, am I okay with that? And the answer, if we're not careful, we become moralists and legalists, and we say, well, they deserve it. No, all of us deserve it, including me and you. All of us deserve it. That's got nothing to do with the fact. The Bible says that, that hell wasn't even made for people who don't believe, believe in Christ. That was not the original intention. The original intention was for the devil and his angels. The rebellion in heaven that pushed back against God, who knew God, who knew God intimately and pushed back against God anyway. Right? And so that person, he says there's a place for that person because that person is eternal. You can't just annihilate them because that's a big belief in the modern church. We'll just annihilate. God in his mercy will annihilate all those who believe. No, that's not what scripture teaches. Why is that important? Because the enemy, was, there was a space created for the enemy. Why? Because he's eternal. And the truth is that you and I are also eternal. <laughs> we, we, you're going to spend eternity somewhere. Every friend you have, every family member you have is going to spend eternity somewhere. And you can argue about all the reasons why. It's because you know, some people are terrible sinners, and they are. Some people are worse sinners than other sinners. But you are not a sinner because of the things you did. You are a sinner because you were born into it. You affirmed it with your own sin later. So if you'd have been Adam, you'd have, you'd have done the same thing. You would have sinned. That's why that's, it's, it's important to understand that. But all of us, none of us deserve heaven. None of us deserve the love that God has given us. He's given it anyway. And if you don't understand the contrast of the bad news, the good news means nothing to you personally, and it'll mean nothing to what you do about it. You'll just live a good Christian life. Make, you know, try not to make any enemies. Try not to take a big stand. Try not to be controversial. Try not to get in trouble. You know, I'm just trying to just trying to have peace and you know make a, I'm just trying to take care of my family my family <laughs> it's it what it does it just becomes selfishness so here's the challenge to us this is galatians 6:15 right because he's going after this with the galatians believers having believed a different gospel he said neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything what counts is a new creation so this is what Paul, the whole argument against this different gospel is they're all making a big deal about you got to do this, this, this. you got to get circumcised. you got to follow all of the law of Moses, right? you got to do all these things. And Paul comes back and they fight vehemently for this in the early church because they wanted to preserve a gospel that would actually save you and not just make you feel better about yourself, right? And so what he said was neither uncircumcision, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything at all. So here's what he's saying. Who cares about your argument? Your religious argument means nothing for or against. I've taken a stand against circumcision. That's awesome. Means nothing. Means nothing. Fight your hardest against circumcision. Yeah, we won't do that. Fight your hardest. Means nothing. Paul's coming back to the Galatians. He says, here's how you know. You can fight. He said, there's nothing wrong. There's a different gospel. We have to be careful. We have to preserve that, yes. But when it's all said and done, God is after something. He's after a new creation. And here's the thing you need to understand about this as I close. A new creation is just that. It's a creation. 
John talks about this. He says, he says there is, this is John 1.13. He says, the new birth was brought about by the will of God. Listen to this. You were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You were born again. He talks about in the early days when he's talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus says, I don't understand this born again word. It makes no sense to my natural brain. And Jesus is like, no, I get it, right? And he says, he says so here's how to understand that. He says, in the, in the earth, you were born of a woman, you were born of water, right? So understanding the natural birth, some of you nurses understand this, natural birth, born of water. And he said, but then you're born of the Spirit. Something happens. And he said, this is what happens with the Spirit. He said, the Spirit of God is like the wind. He said, you can't see the wind, but you can see its effects. So how do you know if you're a Christian or not? Are you selfish? <laughs> are, you, are you living for you? Have, you? have you really had an understanding of the new creation? Have you really been born again? Have you been just been in church your whole life? Have you been following rules and regulations? Do you know Jesus intimately? Do you know him as a person? Is he more than just a concept or an idea in a book? Is he more than just religious principles? Is he more than the church culture that you grew up in your whole life? Is he more than that, or is he something, is he something to you that's actually a person that you have a relationship with that you can speak to? Here's how I know that you can or can't. Because if you look at yourself and you don't see yourself as having been born again, your relationship with Jesus is always at odds because in your head, this is why the teaching of righteousness is so important. This is why the gift of righteousness is so powerful and why you have to move into the meat of the word. The teachings about righteousness, your relationship with Jesus started because you could bring nothing to the table and Jesus gave it everything so that you could come into relationship with him. How do you think that relationship continues? See, what we do is subtly, what we do is we say, yeah, I understand you get saved. It's all Jesus. But then you better shine up. You better do right. You better go to church. <laughs> right? You start saying all these things. So what's the practical application of that? I, I never get that teaching of righteousness, that righteousness never came by me. My continued walk with the Lord is never by merit. Never. No matter how well I do throughout my Christian life has nothing to do and, and this is a dangerous one, and I know it, because this is what grace means. But it does not change God's love for you one iota. You hear people say that it's not about you losing your relationship with God, but it is about losing your fellowship with God. If you sin as a believer, no, you don't lose relationship, but you, but you lose your fellowship. And what they mean by that is you lose your relationship. Because nobody ever defines it. What does it mean to lose fellowship with God? I screwed up. Here's, here's the easiest way to understand this. Practically, practical theology is I, I, I sin some big juicy sin or I fall into a pattern of sin that used to be in my brain before I became a believer, right? I gave my life to Christ. I'm, I'm saved. I know it, but I fall into sin. And then because I don't understand the teachings about righteousness, now I feel guilty and full of shame, so I can't lean back into the love of God because look at what I've done. After all he's done for me, look how, look how I've done him. And, we, and preachers preach into this all the time. Shame on you. You should, you know, look at how you're treating Jesus. And Jesus is like, that's got nothing to do with me. Right? I, I'm trying to teach you. And the Bible says grace teaches us to say no to sin. The law demands that we not sin. And we can't do it. We're going to get into that. But grace teaches me to say no. How does grace teach me? Because even if I've sinned, even when I've sinned, I have an advocate with the Father who loves me, who will never turn his back on me, who will not leave me as an orphan, who will not walk away from me, no matter how many times I try to walk away from him with my patterns of sin or anything that I do. And so when I experience that kind of love and that kind of mercy and that kind of grace, my heart becomes overwhelmed with the love that God has for me. And so it makes it very, very easy for me to receive the love that he has for me to lay down my foolishness and my guilt and my shame and the condemnation that comes with it. And I believe the gospel again. And so as I do that, I begin to say, I ask the question now because I can come boldly before the throne of grace for help in time of need. I come to God and go, Lord, I have a pattern in my life 
that's from that old world. I don't know where this comes from. Maybe something rises up inside me. Maybe I'm believing something that's not true and it's creating some problems in my life that are sometimes very deep settling. It's destroying relationships. I can't keep a job. There's a million reasons. We talked about addictions and all these different things, right? Identity challenges, whatever comes. At some point, you have to come back and go, but God, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? Because isn't that the question? When Jesus asked the question to his disciples, he said, who do men say that I am? And Peter was the only one who got it right. Remember what he said to them? You did not come up with this on your own. This was a revelation given to you. Whatever you think of Jesus is helpful, but in the end, it doesn't matter until you've had a revelation of who he actually is. And it's given by God. It's not, you can't decide what it is. You can't study with your brain and come to that understanding. You can get close, but at some point, it's, it's something that happens in your spirit, and it happens by faith. You have to believe news that was produced or not believe it, and it's a choice that you make. And when you believe it, from that moment on, that belief changes your nature on the inside, and you are never, ever the same. God says he gives you a new, you are a new creation, which literally means you have a new nature and a new heart. It is not the same one you had when you were a sinner. So there's no such thing as a sinner saved by grace. You're either a sinner or you're saved by grace. And if you are saved by grace, how are you going to walk into the fullness of what God has for you if you are constantly dealing with guilt, shame, and condemnation? The meat of the word is the teachings about righteousness, getting the understanding that none of this comes from you. It's a gift from God. You submit to it, and in that process, you become more and more like the one you're spending time with. Amen? So I just want to encourage this. We go into this. We're going to talk about what the law was for. We're going to talk about all kinds of different things, but at the end of the day, what we're going after is, are you, are you walking in maturity as a believer? Are you a believer? Maybe you think you are. Maybe you've done you know, all the things that you think you're supposed to do, but you don't have an intimate walk with Jesus. And the whole idea behind all this is to introduce you to the one who made you. For you to have a relationship with him, you do not need a priest. You don't need that anymore. The Bible says we have all become priests in this walk with the Lord. You can be your own priest in your own relationship with Jesus, and that's our hope, and that's our prayer for you. Would you stand with me? As we close, if you're not a believer... The, the answer is simply follow Jesus. Can, are you ready to make that decision about becoming a believer tonight? Today, I don't know. Like Whitfield said, you know, when they asked him how many people got saved tonight, he said, I don't know, come back in six months and let's find out. So as these truths hit you in your spirit, maybe you walk away and go, I'm confused or I'm not sure. or what. That's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all. Because part of this is you need, the Bible says things like, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let something inside of you go. If I don't know, you can know that you are saved. You can know. And it's not just praying a prayer. Praying a prayer is a bunch of words, but if it's not preceded by real belief and real faith in who Jesus is and what he did on the cross, it's going gonna, it's gonna to mean nothing to you and you will be what we call a false convert. But if you're serious about this relationship with Jesus, and you're not sure whether you have one, make a decision. I'm going to follow after him. I'm going to read scripture. I'm going to listen to these messages. I'm going to pursue this until I know without a shadow of a doubt that I am a believer. I am walking in the faith of Jesus. I am accepted. I am received. I am walking with my beloved. He is mine, and I am his. Until you know that, you can't move on from being a baby believer into what it means to be a mature believer. And God is calling out to mature sons and daughters in this world. Because I don't know if you've seen this, but the world is going to hell in a handbasket, whatever that handbasket may be. We are the answer to that. But if we are in the same trouble that the world is, who does the world turn to? So I just want to challenge you. Become a mature believer. Walk in the thing that God has for you. Step up in your faith and say, whatever's taken precedence in my life, whatever has been the priority, I'm going to let some of that stuff go and I'm going to begin to make Jesus my priority until I know beyond a shadow of a doubt who he is, who I am, and his calling on my life because when he comes, we'll talk about this next week, he takes away the limitations on your capacity. We're going to go after that next week. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I just say thank you so much. Lord, for what you've done. You have made it clear to all of us, Lord, that there's no way we can save ourselves. But Lord, the good news is that we don't have to. Your law was given, Lord, to show us that we have a need for a Savior. 
and that the Savior was there and had been made available from the foundations of time. Before the foundations of time, a lamb was slain. And so Jesus, this has been your plan all along. And so, Lord, as we lean into you, Lord, will you help us? Will you come and will you teach us about yourself? Holy Spirit, will you teach us all things about Jesus, which you promised to do? Lord, will we get to know you in ways, Lord, that not only ensures our salvation, but, get, but begins to grow us up in our faith until we get, begin to take on, Lord, the kingdom, to begin to move into the kingdom, begin to bring the kingdom to bear in the world and the challenges and the brokenness and the hurt and the pain that the world is experiencing. Lord, we get to become the one who bears the answer to every problem and every hurt and every need that's ever been in this world. So Jesus, thank you for that promise, Lord. Let us see it come to pass in this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you need prayer this morning, we'd love to pray for you guys. We'll have our ministry team up here. Otherwise, have a wonderful week.